If you have your Bibles, uh, you want to turn to Joshua 24. We'll be in 14 and 15, Joshua 24, 14 and 15. Let's uh, ask God to guide our time. Father God, we thank you for these graduates. We thank you for this big accomplishment in their lives. One that family and friends share with them. Lord, we ask that whatever next step they take in the workforce or in academy or perhaps another step, that you would go before them, open the right doors for them, allow them to be wise and godly, protect them, and continue to mold them into all that you desire them to be. And Father, as we look at your inspired and errant word, as we look at the book of Joshua, the 24th chapter, we ask that you would take your word, encourage us in and through it. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, some of you are heading into the workforce, and some of you are off to school. I've done both. I encourage you in both. I think you guys are going to rock it. And I look forward to seeing what God is going to do in and through you. When I was in undergraduate school, college, I took about 40 credit hours in business and about the same number in history. And in my history major, it was rather narrow. I studied from the 1500s to the 1600s in European history, what is called the Reformation and the Counter-Reformation. And out of that came some of the heroes of faith that have encouraged me in the few years since I graduated, very few years. (laughs) One of those individuals is a guy named Hugh Latimer. Now, I would not recommend this to anyone. But Hugh Latimer was a pastor long before he knew Jesus Christ as his personal savior. In fact, he was a pastor before he really had any access to scripture or knew anything about Jesus. He had a pastor friend. His name was Thomas Bliney. And Bliney knew that Latimer did not know Jesus. And so he wanted to share the gospel with his friend. But How does one pastor share the gospel with another pastor without insulting him? So he came up with this plan. He said, Hugh, Mr. Latimer, uh, I haven't been in a confessional booth in a long time. I need someone to hear my confessions. Will you do that? And Hugh said, well, all right, I guess it's my job. I'll sit in one side, you sit in the other. And so his friend began to share the gospel. He started out by saying, I confess that you and I are both sinners. Well, that made Latimer mad. I mean, he's a pastor. Pastors don't sin. Come on, get with it. But he's trapped in a confessional booth as his friend confesses all sorts of things out of the word of God. So he not only confesses that they're both sinners, but that they both need to be saved. And he begins to use scripture. Remember, Latimer has never really heard scripture. He's a pastor, 
but he preaches church dogma. He knows nothing of the word of God. And so he begins to hear for the first time in his life, in the confessional booth, actual scriptures. Some of those scriptures were as follows. Romans 3.23, all have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God. And sin is any attitude, action, thought, motive, inactivity, anything outside the will of God is sin. 1 John 1.8, if we say that we have not sinned, we're liars and the truth is not in us. Romans 6.23, what we deserve for our sin is to be separated from God for eternity. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's why Jesus came. He came because of our sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, he the Father made him the Son who knew no sin to be sin for us, that through him, through faith in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. And finally, John 3, 16. You gotta put that in there somewhere, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And Pastor Hugh Latimer, for the first time, had something happen in his heart. He realized that he was a sinner, as we all are. He needs a savior, as we all need. And in the confessional booth, this pastor placed his faith in Jesus Christ. Well, then he began to preach. Not church dogma, but he began to preach scripture. And because he had never heard scripture before, he thought everyone in England should have scripture. Not just the clergy, he was a clergy, he didn't have scripture, but he thought everyone, laity, clergy alike, should have the Bible. Now this had been done before, several times actually. The first major English translation by, was by William Tyndale. And if you were a commoner, a layperson, and you were caught with a William Tyndale Bible, not only was the Bible burned, but you could be in serious trouble as well. Not only could you be in prison, but you could lose your life. But Hugh Latimer didn't care. He thought all of us ought to have access to the Word of God, and we all ought to read the Word of God. And so he begins to preach from the Bible. And as it turns out, he's really good at it. And he gains a reputation as England's greatest preacher. Because of that, the king came to the congregation to hear Hugh Latimer preach. Now, you heard of this king. He's a bad character. His name is King Henry VIII. You know, Henry VIII, I am, I am. Henry VIII, I am. That's the guy. Yeah, uh, you guys know that one. Your got that. <laughs> they know you that guys one. didn't. They definitely know that one. Whatever. <laughs> but Henry VIII not only had problem with women, he was a murderer. What you may not know about Henry VIII is in the almost 38 years that he ruled, he put to death conservatively 50,000 and likely up to 80,000 people. We're not talking about soldiers dying in war. We're talking about people who disagreed with him politically or spiritually. He put to death, to death 50 to 80,000 people. And now he's in the congregation. And Hugh Latimer thinks to myself, himself, what am I going to do? I know what I'm about to preach, but if I preach that to the king, he might put me to death. I gotta change my message. 
And then he had a second thought. Wait, the king is in the congregation. The king is in the house. I will not change my message for an earthly king while the king is present. Graduates, the king is in the house. Your house, your place of employment, your dorm room, the king is in the house. And there's going to be pressure as time goes on. There's already been pressure. It's going to up. Pressure to follow a professor. Follow a crowd. Follow a friend. Follow what's immoral or unethical or unbiblical. Always remember, the king is in the house. But Hugh Latimer preached what he intended to preach, and he survived. Eventually, Henry VIII died. He was followed by his rather godly son, Edward, who was sickly and ruled for six years. And then he was followed by his daughter. Now, you may know her as Queen Mary. Some call her Bloody Mary. Which is ironically Jeff's favorite drink. (laughs) I'm a Shirley Temple guy. Let's get that right. Wow. Wow. You thought that was funny, did you? I picked you as a Shirley Temple guy. (sighs) Wow. Man, standards are low in this church. (laughs) Well, when Queen Mary came to the throne, there were 1,100 pastors preaching the Bible in England. And she publicly declared she would put all 1,100 to death. 800 of them escaped England, got to the mainland, and their lives were spared. 300 were caught. Hugh Latimer was one of the ones that was caught. And he suffered a great deal for his preaching of Scripture. The day in which his trial came in 1555... He was tried with another pastor, Nicholas Ridley. And Nicholas Ridley was about to deny his faith when Hugh Latimer looked right at him. And he said, be of good cheer, Master Ridley. Play the man. Today we are about to light a candle in England by God's grace that I trust will never go out. And they lost their lives. But can you imagine how great the reward is in all of eternity? Play the man. Play the woman. Be the man of God. Be the man. Be the woman. Be the individual of the kingdom of God. You're going to have individuals that are going to pressure you to say and believe and do things that are not of the king. Remember, the king is in the house. But it's not just Hugh Latimer. There's been women and men throughout the centuries who have lived God-centered, God-glorifying, honoring lives. Join them. Be one of them. One such man 
is the individual we're going to talk about today. His name is Joshua. And I want to read Joshua 24, the 15th verse. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods of your father served in the region beyond the river, that is the Euphrates, or the gods of the Amorites, including the Canaanites, in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. At this point, uh, Andrew is going to talk for three or four minutes, Jared for two or three minutes, and then you'll get me again. Thank you, Jeff, for generously allotting us five minutes after our discourse into medieval theology. It was, it was a wonderful tour. So, medieval theology? Yeah. I'm just, uh... You're just off by 500 years. No problem. Sorry, Henry VIII. Okay. Joshua is a central figure in Hebrew scriptures of the Old Testament. Uh, Joshua was the heir apparent to Moses during the Exodus account, and then through the 40 years that Israel wandered through the wilderness due to their disobedience and refusal to enter into the promised land the first time around. And they didn't enter into the promised land because they were afraid and they didn't trust in God's provision or his protection or his promises. So as they go through the 40 years in the wilderness, eventually Moses dies and the mantle of leadership is passed along to Joshua. And Joshua, as he leads the people of Israel into the promised land, you can read about that account in the Old Testament book that bears his name. And in the first chapter of Joshua, we learn that as he's getting ready to lead the people of Israel, he's a little uh, hesitant. He's a little scared. He's a little timid. He's looking at Moses and his Shaquille O'Neal-sized leadership shoes he has to fill, and he's looking at himself and thinking, I don't think that I am up for the task. Well, then the angel of the Lord appears to Joshua three days before they cross the Jordan and tells Joshua, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And from that moment on, Joshua really lived out those words. Throughout the rest of the book of Joshua, we see the story of how Joshua was strong and courageous and confident that the Lord would be faithful to his promises. So our passage today in Joshua 24, it picks up during the final years of Joshua's life. The nation of Israel has driven out the majority of the Canaanites from the land. Joshua has allotted the land to the different tribes, and he is getting ready to disperse them to go and settle into their new homes. The nation of Israel was essentially preparing for her commencement, and Joshua had prepared a commencement address. For centuries, Israel had been anticipating a day when they would be politically independent and free, and the day had finally arrived. And as graduates, perhaps you find yourself feeling very similarly. Your adult life is about to commence. Maybe for a few years, you have been anxiously anticipating the day when you feel more free and independent, and you are about to experience that. You're about to disperse all across the Midwest to different lands, so to speak. So I think Joshua's commencement address provides us with some timeless truths for how to navigate this transition well. 
Joshua's words provide a helpful guide for cultivating a resilient and and strong faith throughout a season of great transition. And as your pastors this morning that are speaking on behalf of your church family, we desperately desire for you to follow Joshua's exhortation to choose this day to serve the Lord. Before you head off into the uncharted territory of of adulthood, we urge you to resolve to be a faithful follower of Jesus. Refuse to settle for just being a fair weather fan. And you guys know this terminology. I use it often in G180, but we're going to hit it one more time since I get one last time to talk to you guys. Think about that verbiage of being a faithful follower versus a fair weather fan. Everyone knows the difference. Fairweather fans only make an appearance when there's something exciting or popular to support. Their team is doing well. For instance, I didn't grow up in Wisconsin, so I would at best be a fairweather fan of the Packers. If they have a good season, which hasn't happened for a while, but let's say in a hypothetical world they have a good season to make it all the way to the Super Bowl. I would probably throw on a jersey and cheer for the Packers. I don't know if I'd put on a cheese block, but I'd at least put on a jersey, right? That's a Fairweather fan. If they're having a bad year, I don't really care. I don't watch the games, right? Now, some of you, you're more than that. You cut, you cut yourself and you bleed the Packers colors, right? You're, you're, you are faithful followers. Through better or worse, you are always there. There's a difference between a Fairweather fan and a faithful follower. And for a lot of you that grew up in church, it's really easy to just be a Fairweather fan of Jesus. Throw on my Jesus jersey on Sunday morning or Wednesday night. It's really fun to talk about Jesus and life group and sing, so long as I'm surrounded by 200 other Christ followers that are the same age as me. But the moment, no one else is a Christian, the moment's tough, the moment's hard, the moment there's a cost of following Jesus, well, let's just take that jersey off and hide it in the closet somewhere. I don't really know if I want to follow Jesus then. And you need to realize that the older you get, the higher the pressure there will be from our culture to move you from faithful follower to fair weather fan or even worse, former follower. As you commence adulthood, you have to decide whether or not you are going to choose to serve the Lord. So let's pause there for a moment and ask a couple of questions. First, why do you think Joshua urged the people of Israel that they needed to resolve that day to follow the Lord? And then second, why did Joshua gather the people together to renew the covenant? They had already made a covenant with the Lord years ago. So they're just renewing their vows. Why do they have to do this? Well, a couple reasons. First, Joshua realizes they're still on the fence. After 40 years in the wilderness, after conquering the land, after making the vows, they're still on the fence. They still have idols that they're toting around with them. They haven't committed. And maybe that's true of some of you. Maybe some of you haven't actually said, you know what, I want to faithfully follow Jesus and I want to commit to this. But then there's another reason Joshua knows that the different regions he is about ready to send the people of Israel out into are filled still with distractions temptations, competing worldviews, and numerous idols. And the same is true of you. Whether you go into the workforce, the academy, the military, you're going to be faced with distractions, temptations, competing worldviews, and numerous idols. Which is why we want you to commit today to faithfully follow the Lord, and we're going to look at some ways that you can do that. 
So we're actually going to spend a little bit of time looking at Joshua 24, verse 14. That's the verse that comes right before 15. And it provides us with some ways that we can actually choose this day to serve the Lord. So listen to this verse. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and serve him in faithfulness. Put away the gods, the false gods, the idols that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and instead serve the Lord. So in this verse, we see four commands. Fear the Lord, serve the Lord with sincerity, serve the Lord with faithfulness, and put away the false gods and the idols. And those four commands really give us four action steps for how you can cultivate this type of resilient faith, a faith that can withstand distractions, temptations, competing worldviews, and numerous idols. So with that, I want to give the first principle. Principle number one, you need to fear the Lord. You need to fear the Lord. But what does that mean? What does it actually mean to fear the Lord? For many, fear is kind of a negative term. It's a loaded term. It comes with baggage or misrepresentation. But in scripture, when we as God's children are commanded to fear the Lord, and that is a common refrain throughout scripture, the main thrust of the exhortation, it's not terror. It's not inner angst. It's not unsettled anxiety or dread. That's not the type of fear that sons and daughters of the Lord are called to cultivate. And the apostle John makes that clear in his first epistle when he says, there is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear. For fear, dread, has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So if we are in Christ, if we are in Jesus, fearing the Lord doesn't mean that we are dreading that God is going to punish us for our sins. That's not the right type of fear. Why? Because our sins have already been atoned for by the sacrificial work of Jesus. There's nothing left for God to punish us for. For Christ followers, fearing the Lord is not about dreading punishment. Rather, it's about reverence, respect, and adoration for the Lord of the universe. Fearing the Lord isn't trembling in dread before a holy God, but trembling in gratitude and adoration for a holy God who would love us enough to create a way for broken, sinful people to be adopted as beloved sons and daughters. Now, I think I shared this with you at G180 one time, but I want to uh, repeat it one more time because I think it captures this principle well. You're reusing an illustration. I'm reusing an illustration. Which, by the way, Jeff I would has like... never reused a historical illustration from the never. Reformation period. Never. Never, ever, ever. What were you going to say? <laughs> Latimer? <laughs> Not only are you reusing this illustration, but I used this in a sermon before you did. This is like the third time they've heard it. When was that between the time you graduated and the two years you were pastoring before I arrived here? I don't, when does that must have been? Just go on. Okay. Tell us the illustration again. It's a good one. There you go. So at the end, uh, one of my favorite war movies, one of my favorite (laughs) World War II movies is Saving Private Ryan, right? If you haven't seen it, the story centers around a group of soldiers that are dispatched to rescue a private who's trapped behind enemy lines. And they're rescuing him because the majority of his siblings had already been killed in the war. So this group of soldiers that's under the command of a captain go behind enemy lines to try to find him. Throughout the journey, many of their group dies and suffers immensely. And at the end of the movie, Private Ryan has been secured. The allied forces are coming to rescue him. Everything is starting to turn well, but the captain of the group is about ready to die. 
And he's looking at Private Ryan, and he says to him, earn this, earn this. And then the movie kind of flashes forward 60, 70 years, and now Private Ryan is standing at the tombstone of the captain in France as an aged man with tears in his eyes, and he breaks down and he says, I hope that at least in your eyes, I didn't waste the life that you so greatly sacrificed for me to have. That is what it means to fear the Lord. That's what it means. It's a heart posture that's overwhelmed by the love that God has shown us and the sacrifice that Jesus made to secure our spiritual freedom. And as such, our greatest desire should be able to say, I hope that at least in your eyes, Father, I did not waste the life that you so greatly sacrificed for me to have. So what is our first step in constructing a resilient, fearless faith? It is never taking the gospel for granted. You never become entitled to God's grace or love or forgiveness. You never forget what Jesus went through in order to transform you into a new creation. You must fear the Lord by being single-mindedly focused on him and his kingdom. So that's our first principle. And for our next two principles, maybe Jared is going to borrow some of Jeff's other ideas for us. <laughs> have, you guys, have you guys ever been like on a, like a, like a you know, outing with friends and it's like the third wheel while the couples are just fighting the whole time? You're just kind of sitting there like, I guess I'm just going to eat my french fries in peace. I don't know. Oh, man. So, just saying, there's a lot of drama on this stage. And I've been pretty quiet this whole time. So <clears throat> just saying. Okay. Jeff is speechless. I like this. All right. <laughs> Second principle, serve the Lord sincerely. You know, the word sincerely can actually get us in a lot of trouble sometimes, or we think that we know what it means. And uh, but think about this. You see something in a friend and you want to sincerely point something out to them because you want them to change. But then you find yourself in hot water with that friend because they did not appreciate your feedback. Um, or maybe more seriously, there are a lot of people in this world who sincerely practice their faith or faith system or religion, um, but it's far from Christianity. And we believe that one day they'll stand before the one true God and, and give an account for their lives. And we'll either be found in Christ um, or we'll be found without an excuse. And people can be sincere and still find themselves in a bad situation one thing we want to talk about today about being sincere is to sincerely follow the Lord. Today we want to look at Merriam-Webster's definition of sincerity. Free from an adulteration and marked by genuineness. To serve the Lord sincerely requires you and I to be single-minded, single-focused, and sincerely following Jesus. It's what Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.5. But the goal of our instruction is to love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. For the past up to seven years in G180, you've been invested into, you've been mentored, you've been prayed with, you've been prayed for, you've been encouraged to love God and to practice sincere faith. And now today on your graduation Sunday, you're hearing the same thing again. See, sincere faith is standing firm in trials, no matter what they look like. It's relying on God's word and his Holy Spirit to instruct you as you go forth. And when you stumble, it's turning back to God. Sincere faith is not perfect obedience, 
Really, it's rooted in our third principle, which we'll spend a few more minutes on, is to serve the Lord faithfully. Just like the word sincerity might have a few different meanings behind it, uh, today's context, this word faithfulness, we could fall into the same trap. You see, Joshua modeled faithfulness to God. And you and I are called to be faithful to God. Now, lucky for us, we don't need to turn to the dictionary. The scriptures are, are clear about what it looks like to be faithful. There's lots of examples and definitions of what it means to be faithful to God. And we want to check out a few of those passages today. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 says, To give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. This speaks to our daily mindset of having a sense of God-inspired gratitude despite our, in spite of our circumstances. The reality is, is leaving here today, you might find yourself in spots where it just might be easy to grumble. It might be easy to not want to be thankful. But you and I as Christ followers understand that no matter what our earthly circumstances are like, we have a hope that goes beyond all circumstances and we have much to be grateful for. We have a God-inspired gratitude no matter what's going on in our lives. Or Psalm 30, verse 4, tells us to sing the praises of the Lord, you, his faithful people. Praise his holy name. You and I are called to be people of worship. Now we know that worship is more than a song. We know it's our lives. It's how we live our lives to, uh, to God. But we have this unique blessing and privilege of being able to sing praises to our God. Some of us, I admit, sing a little better than others, okay? I'm part of the make a joyful noise crowd, all right? My vocals aren't so hot, but I can make lots of noise. Joy for the Lord. You and I are called to sing praises to God. It's one of the reasons why we sing worship on Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights. It's not about a talent show on stage. It's because our God longs to hear the praises of his people. The words we sing come from this overflow of our heart and we sing praises to him and he is glorified and God deserves all of our worship. He deserves all of our focus. He deserves all of our praise and he longs for the praises of his people. Ephesians 4, 1 to 5, Paul writes to the church of Ephesus and God writes to us, therefore, I therefore, as a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility, with all gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. And here we have some helpful descriptors of what it looks like to be a faithful follower. You and I are called to be humble. We're called to be gentle. We're called to be patient. To bear with one another as Christ followers. To be unified. All of these are components to what it looks like to be worthy of, to live a life worthy of our calling. And I think what's cool about this is I think about Ephesians 4 in light of who Joshua was, and I think it gives us this reality of it goes beyond a, just a personal relationship with the Lord, and we sometimes think of it as a private relationship with the Lord, like somehow I can separate my faith with what's going on in the world around me. But the reality is, is, is our relationship with Christ is personal, not private. I think Joshua understood the reality that as a follower of the Lord, 
that his relationship with God had a direct impact on the people around him as well. And the reality is, is for you and I as Christ followers, when we are faithfully following Jesus, it absolutely impacts the people around us. And when we are not faithfully following Jesus, it absolutely impacts the people who are around us. You and I need one another. You and I need the church. We are called to be faithful followers, and we do it by being unified, by being connected to one another, and remembering that our relationship is personal, not private. James 4, verse 7 says, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Ultimately, when we are faithful followers, we are ones who are submitting ourselves to God. Essentially, the enemy can get tired out. Now, we know the enemy doesn't stop all of his tactics, and we know that we will continue to battle and wage war against sin. But there's this cool reality that the more we follow Jesus, the more we're faithful, the more and more we become like him. And we wage war against the enemy. And when we resist the devil, he does flee from us. You and I can grow in our ability to live faithfully for God each day. And honestly, it's just getting started. I want to end my time uh, this morning with looking at one last biblical example of faithful living. I think of Matthew 25, the parable of the talents. In Jesus' parable of the talents, the Lord tells of two faithful servants who used what they had been given to increase their master's wealth. When the master returned from a long absence, he rewarded his two faithful servants and he said to each of them, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Every Christian longs to hear these words from Jesus' lips one day. Well done, good and faithful servant. But I want us to notice whose wealth grew by the servant's faithfulness. It wasn't the servant's. It was the master's wealth. When we are the most faithful, it includes our mindset, our lives, and the posture of our heart to increase the master's wealth. To live fruitful and obedient lives for him means to faithfully follow him. For you and I to be sincere and faithful is what Joshua modeled. It's what Jesus modeled and also commanded of you and I. And it's time for us to follow suit. So let's step back into Joshua's story with our fourth and final principle with Pastor Jeff. That fourth principle, if Jesus is Lord of our lives, we need to get rid of the idols in our lives. Now I think we probably could push back and say, well, you know, I don't have anything made of stone or gold or silver. I don't have any of those idols. Actually, idolatry is not just what's made of stone or gold or silver. It's not just what's made by human hands. An idol is anything in our life or anyone in our life that is more important than God. If something is more important in my heart, it's an idol. It could be a relationship, a boyfriend, a girlfriend. It could be a future job, it could be education, it could be a recreation, it could be a pursuit, it could be a philosophy or an ideology. If there is something in our lives more important to us than God, 
It's idolatry. And that's what Joshua writes about. Let me again read from Joshua 24, partway through 14 and then verse 15. Put away the gods, that is put away the idols that your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river, Euphrates, or the gods of the Amorites, that's including the Canaanites, in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. The text actually doesn't tell us which idols, which false gods that many of the Israelites were following. But because it gives us hints, it talks about beyond the river, Euphrates, Egypt, and the Amorites, including the Canaanites, because it gives us those kind of hints, we're pretty sure we know which gods he's referring to. I think one of the most famous gods of the Egyptian pantheon is Ra. That's really how they pronounced it. Ra. That's the sun god. Now I'm pretty sure, living in central Wisconsin, only a fool worships the sun god Ra. I mean, we're like two clicks from the North Pole. It's not likely that we worship the sun god. But the sun god represents worshiping the creation rather than the creator. That's easy to do. It's easy to worship what has been given to us as a good gift to worship the creation rather than the creator. If we have a recreational pursuit, maybe some kind of sport or something in the arts, or maybe it's the academy or Maybe it's a job. Maybe it's an income, a philosophy, an ideology. If we're pursuing that above our pursuit of God, it's as though we're going after Ra, this false Egyptian God, this sun God. Joshua says very clearly to us, choose today who you will serve. It won't be long before you guys go off into the workforce or go off to college, the academy, wherever you're going. It won't be long before you have to decide, is the faith that I was brought up in, is the faith that my parents kind of foisted on me, is that their faith or is it mine? Choose today who you will serve. Will you go after the creator or will you go after the creation? Will you listen to the professor or the employer or the business world or the crowd? Your roommate, your sweet mate, or will you listen to Christ? Choose today whom you will serve. But it's not just the false gods of Egypt. It's also the false gods of the Amorites, including the Canaanites. Again, I'm not sure which gods he's referring to, but I'm pretty confident that Moloch was one of them. This was a horrific god. 
It was a God that destroyed families, particularly when after children. It's a God that asks us to give up right priorities in order to pursue wrong priorities. And that's going to happen all over our lives. All over our lives, people are going to want different priorities from us. Our boss will want a different priority. Our professors will want a different priority. Our friends, our sweet mates, the crowd, they're going to want a different priority. The priorities that are right before you're 18, when you're 18, after you're 18, the priorities are, that are right have never changed. God first. God first. If you're going away, find a Bible-teaching church. If you're going onto a campus, get involved not only in a church, but maybe a ministry, navigators or crew or intervarsity or something like that. Get involved. Actually, what you decide to do in the first two weeks is probably going to mark your academic career. The friends you make in the first few weeks, by and large, is going to be the crowd you hang out with for your entire academic career. Choose wisely. As for me and my house, we will choose. We will serve the Lord. Priority number one, God. Priority number two, family. Don't forget family. Every week, you call your grandfather. <laughs> and then grandma and then parents. Don't lose the priority. Priority one, God. Priority two, family. Priority three would be work or school, depending on the avenue you're going to. That doesn't mean you're not going to be very academic. You're not going to be a good employee. Colossians says you work heartily unto the Lord, not unto men. You will be the best that you can be. But don't mix up the priority. God first, family second. The academics, the work, third. Moloch, this false beastly God, wants us to mix up the priorities. Finally, I think of two Canaanite goddesses, Atarot and Atharot. They were goddesses of immorality. You've already experienced in the air that we breathe, immorality. What God calls good, society often calls evil. What God calls evil, society often calls good. Choose today who you will serve. If you're dating or plan to date, do it God's way. 2 Corinthians 6.14 to 7.1 says, Do not be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. Choose a believer in Christ that's committed to Christ that will spur you on to take the next step in your walk with Jesus. And then remember that intimacy is between a husband and wife in a marriage relationship. Don't go after the false goddesses of our land. God is in the house. God is going to be in your house. Live for God. Be a Joshua. Choose today 
who you will serve. Well, Andrew's going to lead us in a closing word of prayer. Let's pray together. Father, as we gather together on graduation Sunday, we recognize this is not only a time to honor our graduates for a job well done, that they've uh, put so much time and effort through their, their education experience to this point. But we also recognize today is the day of commencement as they are exiting one stage of life and entering into a new stage, a new stage of adulthood, a new stage of independence, a new stage of them having the ability to choose the type of man or woman they want to become. So Father, we ask that as they are both, our graduates are celebrated today, they are also challenged. They're challenged to live out uh, the command of this text, to resolve that they want to faithfully follow the Lord, to stop um, going back and forth or sitting on the fence, but to be firmly planted on the truth of the gospel and commit themselves to loving and serving you for the entire duration of their lives. We thank you for this amazing group. We thank you for the immense privilege it's been to get to shepherd them and be a part of their lives for so many years. And uh, we just ask for your hand of direction and provision upon them, and we entrust them to you. In Jesus' name. Amen.